Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. We are in 1 Corinthians, and we're still going to be in chapter 1. And I know that John just prayed. I'm going to pray again, though, before we start, because uh, uh, yesterday... As I was preparing, preparing for this, and Charity can attest to this, I got about halfway through in my study of this, and I thought my head was going to explode, and I literally came out to the kitchen, and she, like I said, she can attest to this, came out to the kitchen, sat, we have this little stool, and just sat down there, I was like, I don't, I, I couldn't even come up with the words to say to try to figure out where to go with this. I'm just sitting here thinking. And I'm going to be honest with you, here's the reason why. Quite often when... Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever learned something or, or maybe gotten a, just a glimpse of something new? And you, you want to go and tell somebody else about it, but you know in the going to tell somebody, you know that because you're just barely getting it, to try to explain it to somebody else, you go, I know there's no way, because I'm barely grasping this idea. How in the world am I going to co- convey this to somebody else? Does that make sense? And so I was having that moment the other day, just going... How do I get, because I don't even know if I can even say the words out loud. Like, I'm, I'm getting this glimpse of an idea. How, Lord, how do I get from there to here to Sunday morning where I'm, I'm going to try to talk to you? And there, there's a real sense of a dependence or a need of the dependence on the Spirit. And so I'm going to pray right now because I genuinely know that even though I've got these notes, I've got some nice notes, I know that ultimately in the end, I'm absolutely dependent on God intervening in the Spirit, just giving me the words to say, how, how do we get to this, what He wants? Because I don't want to come across as, this is what I think it is even. But what does God have? Right? So let's pray for this together. Heavenly Father, I just want to ask now that before I say any more words, that you would, or by the power of your Spirit, fill me up. Lord, give me the words to say, guide the direction of my, my very thoughts as I present this passage of 1 Corinthians. Lord, I pray that you would steer me in the right direction. Lord, I pray as well that the reception of these words, because even if my words might be full of faults, God, I pray that the end result, the message that is delivered would be yours. And God, I pray that your spirit would hand deliver that into the hearts of those that are in this room today. Or because I believe that what your word has, and I always believe this is true. But Lord, it's become very clear to me that what we have from 1 Corinthians today is something we all need to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me start by asking you a question. So I've got some questions I want to ask, and the reason why I want to ask these questions is because I want to try to gear your mind into a direction, okay? So let me ask you these questions. Um, Let me start off with this one. So these first few, you're just going to, I just, hopefully your brain will get to flowing, right? The juices will get to, to pumping in here. How do you live your life? Okay, that's the question I have. How do you live your life? Let me expand. Um, not how should you, because see, we're in church. And so if I said, how do you live your life? I'm sure that somebody would be thinking, well, we must live our life by the Bible. And I hope that you believe that. But let's ask it a little bit deeper. How do you actually live your life? What, how do you make your decisions? What drives your decision-making process? Or I could say, how do you decide 
what is best for your life. Okay, do you see where I'm going? Like, but how do you decide? Like, when you're trying to figure out what to do on a daily basis, the direction you take, right? The decisions come up. You've got a, a, a pack. Do I go this way, this way? How do I decide? What, what do I decide? And more than that, how do I decide? Because sometimes you're thinking, I think this is best. And I want to get to that place so I can start heading down that direction. How do you want things to end up? How do you picture your life going? Do you see where I'm going with this? I could put it this way. If I was with a bunch of educators, we talk about goal setting. I've never been one for goal setting. But I think some of us, we have goals, don't we? I mean, maybe we don't have like written down. Some people, some people do that. Now, John, I'm looking at John. John seems like the type. I bet John's the type that actually goes, I'm going to plan out my goals. For, do you? Yes. I could tell. I, I, I just knew. I'm, I get frustrated if I don't meet my Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, the, the funny thing is, I wish I could be more like that sometimes and actually like try to come up with my actual goal. Like, I want to be one of those guys like John that's like goal-minded. I'm not very good at that. But I think that somewhere in the back of my mind, even of those of us that don't have those, we still have a picture. Now, I'm going to picture the picture, uh, and I, I, I'm going to tell you this right now. Charity uh, and I, we've had 100 conversations about this early on in our lives. Um, I'm going to describe the picture as whatever your version of the white picket fence is. Do you know what I mean by that? Like the house. Here, actually, I don't want to lose my notes here. The, the house, the easy life. Maybe even, maybe you're really goal-minded. Like you got the good retirement plan. You're thinking about that and down the road and you're, everything's going good. Maybe it's nice stuff. Well, you know what? Maybe you're not thinking that way at all. See, I, I was kind of painting that out. Maybe for some of you that's the case. Even if you wouldn't say it out loud, there's a part of you that wants the white picket fence reality. Me, I wouldn't describe it as a white picket fence reality. I would call it the lazy boy reality. <laughs> Who cares about the fence? I want, I want a nice living room with a chair that reclines and I can just... And, and quiet. I want quiet. I want, nobody... No, none of that. No, nobody's that. And I just sit there, and I, I, I long for the moment when I have nothing to do. I'm just relishing in it. <laughs> what would that be like? I was struggling yesterday because I, I, sometimes when I'm trying to work on my sermon, I have this problem where I, I, I'll sit down to read one of the commentaries, and I'll try to work through it, and there's... All my brain is thinking about is I need to get this done and I need to do this. And anybody else like that? I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And I'm trying to focus on this. And I, I, I have a difficult time like setting all those things aside and like organize. Let me see if I was more goal-minded. Maybe I could do that. I could say, here's what I'm going to do right now. And I'll save those things for later. But since I'm so scatterbrained, sometimes it's like I'm trying to do this. But my brain is also trying to formulate my to-do list in my head. Like, okay. You know, I'm reading the Bible, but then in my head I'm going, okay, now at nine, I could probably work this in and do these things. But maybe, you know what, maybe that's not like, maybe you guys are above that. So maybe your goals are a little bit less shallow. Maybe you want to be, uh, maybe you have some intellectual goals. You want to be one of those people that knows stuff. You, right? You say, I want to know stuff. 
I want to be one of those people that, that has a good grip on how things work and maybe how life works. I think that if I could argue that point, I could say that maybe in there somewhere, if you really got down to it, your reason for your intellectual goals is actually because you think if you could figure out how it all works, you could get to the white picket fence. Okay, because if you could figure out how it all works, you could foresee what's going to happen and you could make the best decision. And maybe somewhere back in the back, there is those white picket fence thoughts. Maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe you have different, even, even loftier goals. Maybe you have goals emotionally. You want to be one of those people where things don't rock you. Whatever comes along, you are steadfast, solid, unshakable. You've seen some people like that in theory, at least you think they're like that. I might argue the fact that there probably isn't as many people like that as you would think. But maybe you see someone and it just seems like they are unshaped. Whatever happens, steadfast. So maybe you go, you're happy, content. And so maybe you've, you've seen past the shallowness of the white picket fence and seen into this other contentment. And those things are still there. I would argue that sometimes when we go down that path, what we really want is the white picket fence, but we think, I'll never quite get that, but I want to get to a place where I can decide my own white picket fence. And I would also argue that maybe sometimes in the middle of that, we think, if I can just get to this, maybe, and this leads me to my next thing, maybe God, see, then he steps into the picture. Maybe God will give me that, if I show that I'm content with this. Anybody ever gone down that road before? Anybody willing to raise their hand on that one? <laughs> I got a few. Uh, yeah. These are all these ways that we're working things. And so maybe we've delved into what we think is our goal. Maybe it's spiritual. How do you see God play into all this? What is your own spiritual state? Are you faithful? Are you secure? Come what may. You've seen that it's not just about these other things. It's, it's bigger than that. And that's good. You're headed the right direction. But let's come back here. Even in that, even in all these other things, whatever the goals are, the question is, where do you want to end up? But also, how do you want to get there? This leads me to another train of thought. Now, I, I'm sorry if this introduction is taking a while, but this is so important to really enter into this thought process because you have to think then, well, who is doing life successfully? I want you to think for a minute in your head. I want you to picture somebody in your mind that you think, man, they're, they're doing life successfully. Whatever your version, def, definition of success is, I don't even care what it is right at this moment. But you have anybody in mind that you go, they, they got it figured out. Raise your hand if you have somebody. You don't have to tell me who it is. But I have somebody in your head, you think, that, not perfect, but you go, I think they got it figured out. Okay? See, and, and maybe you might see that when you start asking those questions, who's really making it? Who's got it figured out? Who's going down that road? Part of what you, the reason why you're looking at them is you're, you want to know, how do they do it? I want to be like them. How they're accomplishing those things. For some successful people, we think of celebrities or rich people, and I don't think that there's anybody in this room that's that shallow. Maybe it's just hardworking, diligent people um, seem to have it all together. They've got it figured out. I would ask you that, do you see them as successful because they've gotten the white picket fence? 
maybe not perfectly so, but what, however you've defined your white picket fence. Okay, so maybe for you, you're like, I don't care about a fence. Maybe it's like me, the lazy boy. The ease of life. Maybe it's just smooth. Things are going smooth for them. They, they've, they've got a grip. On, they're living within their means. They're, they're handling, handling things well. Whatever that person is, maybe you've just find that as your white picket fence. That's what I'm looking for and that's what I want. And so you look at that person and you think, I just want to get to that place. And, want, and you watch them. Maybe it's spiritual people. I don't know. But I'm headed down this path for this reason. I'm going to throw in another word there. The word is wisdom. Okay? Wisdom. I want you to think of wisdom the way we've been thinking about it in these terms. Uh, Cleverness, practicality, not just smarts, but that's part of it. Think of wisdom for a moment, because I think this is how most people think of wisdom, is the way the Corinthians thought of wisdom. The Corinthians thought of wisdom as that ability to make those right sorts of choices to get to, well, they didn't have white picket fences, to their Roman columns, right? Whatever they saw as wisdom to them, and I think that most of us, if we're really honest, when we think of people who are wise, we think of people that have figured out how to make the right decisions to lead to whatever they have viewed as to be the successful, good life. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute because that's how the Corinthians would have seen wisdom. This is important today, not just for those reasons, but also because of this. The term Sophia, which is wisdom, right? That term is found 17 times in 1 Corinthians, 16 of those in the first three chapters. So do you think wisdom is an important topic for 1 Corinthians? Absolutely. In fact, when you read the rest of that, but only 11 times elsewhere in all of Paul's letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of those other letters of Paul, wisdom is used 11 times. In 1 Corinthians, 16 of those just in the first three chapters. This is important because for the Corinthian people, wisdom was big. Wisdom was important. Corinth was known because Corinth was a Roman city. Corinth was known, and I've talked about this before with Apollos. Corinth was known of their love. In fact, think of the word philosophy. They had philosophers. Philosophy meant, philo means love of you hear the Sophie right at the end? Philosophy, it's the love of wisdom. So these philosophers are people who loved wisdom. And so they had people, they, would, they, they gathered around people who seemed like they had thought through life and figured it out. Now, a cheap version of that we have today are these, uh, uh, what do you call them, the, 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 the special speakers that come in, the self-help gurus, the inspirational speakers, right, that come in and they, this is how you live your life. I've nailed it and it's come down to these three words and you do these three things and you focus on the, uh, boom, right? Now, if I'm going to talk like that, I need a bigger microphone on the side, don't I? I need one of those big puffy ones right here. This, here's how you do it. In Corinth, it was very similar. 
They would have these speakers come, these orators, and they, they loved the ones that had figured it out. And I think it was probably very much like what we see happening in our world today. People that come in, because you're, we're looking around, we're going, man, life is hard, and I'm having a difficult time living it. And I see some people that it seems like they've figured it out, and I want to get to that place where I'm figuring out life, and I'm not such a train wreck all the time. And so this, I, then you hear this person comes along, well, ah, this is what you must do. These three things or these five steps to a better life. And Corinth was wrapped up in that. Do you remember a couple weeks ago I said Corinth was going through a lot of the same things that we're going through? Would you agree with that? In fact, I would not be surprised if many of you in this room have had times in your life, whether it was a preacher or just a speaker or a book, and you said, I think I've found it. I think I've figured it out. This is the guy. And then you promote that. But we talked about a little bit of that last week. Maybe you found it. But, but think now to the core, because this is exactly what Paul's doing. He's digging down to the core of what was going on. And I think it was right here. Wisdom. Because the Corinthians saw wisdom as a way or a means to make the right decisions at the right time and the right way to get to this life that they wanted. This is important to the Corinthians. I'm going to throw in there another word after I read this first verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Now this verse is packed. This is the verse that gave me a headache yesterday. Okay? I'm nervous of putting the word, I'm actually feel nervous about putting this verse up here because I know, like, I'm going to put it up there, and I'm going to be, there's so many things in this one little verse, and I'm not going to be able to nail, okay, so okay, i got to be okay with that. All right. The word of the cross is folly. Think of folly as the opposite of that wisdom. Folly is making the wrong decisions to end up in a ruined life. Okay? Isn't that what we think about with foolish people? Foolish people, look, their life is a train wreck. My life is a train wreck because I've been foolish. Okay? The word of the cross is folly, foolishness. To those who are perishing, headed to ruin. But to us who are being saved, that's important. And you'd think... He would say, to us who are being saved, it's wisdom. That's not what he says. Any reader that's paying attention when they read would expect Paul to say, it's the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's wisdom. But he doesn't say that. What does he say? It's the what? Power of God. It's interesting. First, let me break this apart just a little bit. The first thing I mentioned here is this counter. Folly, the counter to that, power of God. Second, um, the word or the message of the cross seems like foolishness to whom? What does it say? Those who are perishing, those who are headed to ultimate destruction. There's a, there's a lot of twists and turns here because most people would say foolish living leads you to a 
the train wreck life. Wise living leads you to destination happiness. Okay? So the ones who are really headed to ultimate ruin, the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to them. There's all kinds of twists here. Third, those who are being saved, not those who are saved. This is significant discussion that we're going to touch on a little bit today, but we're, this one is going to play out through the rest of 1 Corinthians. In the scriptures, especially in Paul's writing, saved is used in all three tenses, past, present, and future. We typically use it in the past, don't we? I've been saved. Paul very seldom uses it that way. He usually uses it in the present tense, we're being saved, and quite often uses it in the future tense, we're going to be saved. I heard the illustration of a lifeboat. This is not a perfect one. But think of somebody, the ship has sunk. Uh, the person who um, gets into the lifeboat has been saved. As they're rowing to the shore, they're being saved. And when they finally make it, they think, I'm saved. It's a good illustration, not perfect. That's going to play into our thought process as we go. So let's put that on the shelf. Can we do that right now? Put it on the shelf. We'll come back to that. Salvation is something that has happened, is happening, and will happen. It's, man, it's maybe bigger than what you view salvation as. There's one more thing before, to discuss before we go any further, and that's the cross, crucifixion. We do not see that word the way the Corinthians would have seen or heard that word. Let me give you a glimpse. Death on a cross was regarded in Roman society, Corinth was a very Roman city, as brutal, disgusting, and abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves and convicted terrorists and could never be imposed upon a Roman citizen or more respectable criminals. It was so offensive to good taste that crucifixion was never mentioned in polite society. They wouldn't talk about it. Other than in you, like they might allude to it, but they would never say it. Crucifixion. So it, that's, that's so important because when we go back to Paul's verse here that we just read, for the word of the cross, we hear that and we think of pretty cross. They would not have heard it that way. The cross was disgusting. The cross was the very picture of the person who had blown it. It was the picture of a person who had lived to the end of the train wreck with a train wrecked life and had been convicted and the world knew it. And there they were. Last year they found, and if you look on the, I think I have a laser pointer here. Let's see. If you look on the side here, this is an actual bone with a nail going through it um, that they found just last year. There's not a whole lot of evidence of Roman crucifixions because uh, people saw the nails as being mag having some type of magical quality. So after people died, they'd pull the nails out and people would sell them. It was like a, a thing that they sold that had some meat. I don't know. I don't get that. But they found a bone with the nail through it. And then uh, the archaeologists, they recreated what this, because it's, it's like an ankle bone, it's right near the foot. They recreated what this foot would have looked like with the, so this board, and so imagine a piece of lumber here that was nailed into, okay? Not quite the way we pictured Jesus being nailed to the cross. 
Okay? Um, here's a piece of Roman graffiti. Oh, click here. This is a piece of Roman graffiti. On the left, you see the etching in stone. On the right, you see this, is, this dates way back from that time period. Notice how the feet were in this crucifixion. Okay? So a much better understanding. Now, there was a lot of ways that people were crucified, but one of the, uh, the best understandings we have based on what we've found archaeologically is that crucifixion probably would have been a lot more like this. Um, nailed to the cross. Now the hands either on the top or on the front, or some of them even have like all the way around to the back like this. The reason why a person would die on a cross is because, um, have you heard the word excruciating? The word excruciating, right in the middle of that, what word do you kind of hear? Excruciating. Do you hear the word cross? Uh, the word excruciating means, is it comes from Latin, out of the cross. The, the cross was a picture of the most painful, unbearable way to die, and the most humiliating, because this guy has a nice little loincloth on. They wouldn't have crucified Christ that way. Let that sink in. Why was this abhorrent? People most often, it took several days for them to die, because the way they, they, they look, I mean, because you're, you're not, usually they weren't bleeding to death, they would, they would have to, like in the position they hung, it was hard to breathe. And so their lungs would start to fill up with fluids. And so they would have to pull themselves up. Now imagine that right now. Lifting, especially when you think about it this way, lifting with their legs. So a lot of times they had their legs bent, so they had to lift with their legs. What are they pushing on to lift themselves up? Those nails through their, the bone in their ankles. Excruciating, right? I'm never going to use that word the same again pull themselves up to breathe. But then how long are you going to be able to hold that? Back down. Many people take days for them to die. You see in the story of, the, uh, of Christ and the cross, what did they do with this, the, the two other thieves to get them to die by the end of the day? You may remember? They broke their legs, right? Why, why did that cause it? Because then what were they unable to do if they came up with a club and broke their legs. They were unable to lift themselves up to breathe. So they, then those thieves would have done what? They would have suffocated. Excruciating. And when you th think about this, humiliating. The cross. So when Paul says the word of the cross is folly, that part would have made a little bit of sense to the Corinthians until he finished that sentence. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's difficult for this all to come together until you really start to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. The word of the cross is folly. A man named Jurgen Moltmann, Moltmann said this, a theologian, he said, surrounding the scandal of the cross, and there's a reason why he uses the word scandal, I'll get to in just a minute. Surrounding the scandal of the cross with roses, with our prettiness in church, we too often forget its ugliness and shame. We forget the ugliness and shame that Christ endured. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, Paul says. But for us who's being saved, this word of humiliation, shame, degradation, damnation, 
That word to us who are being saved is the very power of God, Paul says. He goes on to add to this. He says, for it is written. So he goes to the Old Testament to say, let, let me give some validity to what I'm saying to you, Corinthians. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. This is Isaiah 29, 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God speaking here. He cites this as an example of how God will turn the tables and what man has deemed as wisdom so there's a, this reversal of things. And Paul cites his Old Testament to validate that. He continues on addressing even their, their own context. Where is the one who is wise? Now, if you enter into the Corinthian mindset and their love of the philosopher, you'll get where he's coming at. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly, the foolishness of what we preach, the cross, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. The Greeks Seek wisdom. The Jews, as well as many today, seek signs. They just seek displays of power over circumstances. Power meaning influence, right? Influence over people. Things that you could do to be victorious in your life. The Jews seek signs. The Greeks seek wisdom, right choices that lead to a successful outcome of life. Knowing when and where to say and do what is necessary to lead to that good outcome. Neither one of these would end with death on a cross. That is precisely the message that Paul preaches. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block. The Greek scandalon. It's a scandal. It's scandalous what you're saying. This message of the cross is a, stand, a, a scandal to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to us, to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the cross, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We at this church preach Christ crucified. This guy, Anthony Thistleton, says, The proclamation of a humiliated, crucified Christ whose manner of death was too shameful to, for mention in polite conversation had nothing to do with the spectacular or the manipulative. Because let's be honest, isn't manipulation how we quite often display power? I'm going to get what I want, and if I can't get what I want my way, I'm going to make sure this person does what they want, and I'm going to orchestrate this to get right here, and this thing is going sour, so I'm going to work over here to try to get this thing to happen. To The cross is an abandonment of all of that. To be humiliated on a cross, Christ gave up manipulation of anyone. Did he try to manipulate Pilate into letting him go? No. 
had nothing to do with the spectacular or manipulative, but it effectively empowered, most especially as power for, rather than as Christianized version of secular power over. Let me explain what that means. The cross accomplished power for. In Christ's obedience to the cross, we can say what? You, I, salvation that could not be accomplished, he accomplished. How did he accomplish it? By exhibiting the power the way the world would think of power? No. By completely, I think, knowing God is in control, going with the flow of all the wrong that was being done to him, to God's ultimate purpose. Not power over, but power for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, writes this. He says, Paul's reversals simply reflect those of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll put a quote of his up here in just a minute. This is where it starts to get practical, okay? These are some big ideas. Can you see why I had a headache yesterday thinking about this? Okay. My head's still hurting a little bit. Paul's reversals simply reflect those of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus ascribes good fortune or blessedness. This, this can twist your mind up for the rest of the week, I hope. Jesus describes good fortune or blessedness not to the successful, not to the powerful, not to the self-confident, but to the bereaved, to the persecuted, to the poor. Do you see how this message of the cross is flipping everything around backwards? Why? Dietrich Bonhoeffer asks. Because they, the bereaved, the persecuted, the poor, they are driven to abandon self-reliance to seek the grace of God on God's own terms. If it is I who say where God will be, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, if it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a God who corresponds to me. So if I dictate where I think God should be found, I'll tell you right now, if I was dictating where God should be found, me, God would be found in my recliner <laughs> with the perfect, now the only person who's going to get this is my wife, with the perfect desk lamp that has just the right amount of light where I can read my Bible in absolute peace. That's where I would find God. If I dictate where God would be found, I find there a God, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that corresponds to me. Not really God, is it? But if it is God, if I let go of that and say, God, show me where you are the way you would choose to reveal yourself to me. It is God who says, there he will be. The place is cross of Christ. Do you understand that? Many of you know exactly what's being said here because many of you, it wasn't when things were going smooth that you found God. Where was it at? In the most horrible circumstance that you could think of. When you said this, this just 
anything but this. And then that happened. Some of you, if you're honest right now, you go, that's where I really found God. That's foolishness. That a train wreck of a life would lead to ultimate understanding with God. You see that? It's foolishness. I feel foolish when I tell people this. People come and they go, man, this horrible thing happened. And I go, I say things that I know ultimately sound like this to them. Well, that's good. Jerk. <laughs> I didn't want this. Have you found God? Why do you want to find God this way? I know, I'm sorry. But you did, didn't you? Didn't you find him there? This is, this is nuts. It's the word of the cross. It's the word of the cross. Let me try to wrap this up with, with three things. I know I sound, risk sounded like the, the inspirational speaker, but I got three things for you, three words. One, this will affect you because there, this, this, is, this is a big idea. So I want to give you just three things that how, how it might begin, because there's no way that you could walk out or I'm going to ever walk, walk out of here because if I think back to what I said earlier, we've been saved, we're being saved, and we're going to be saved. And so this, this is a process, okay? First thing, perception. This can change your perception of everything, when you start to believe the foolishness of the cross, you will see things differently. It changes how you view what is happening to you, your circumstances, the events that are out of your control, as well as the events that may have at one time been within your control, and now you're in this horrible situation because you made some stupid decision, but someone who embraces the message of the cross starts to see these things differently, and they go, Maybe I was dumb and how I got here. Maybe it was somebody else's stupidity and how I got here. But you start to see things. You start to go, but here I am. And in the pit, you know who I found? Even though, like the psalmist says, even though I make my bed in hell, God, you're there. I found you. Or you found me. And maybe you brought me here because you wanted me to see you. And I wasn't going to see you unless you brought me here. And then your mind starts to really get going. But then the word of the cross says, God, I'm okay with this. And so then you start to see these crazy things. And I'm not going to put Simone on the side. Simone and I, we've had conversations about this. You see these people, the horrible things happen, and they seem to be filled with joy. And we've talked, like, what's wrong with those people? Right? When you start believing the word of the cross, what starts to happen? I get it. I get it. Number two, reaction. You start to see it differently, but then you'll start to find yourself reacting differently. There's a lot of ways this could play out. In one way, just you personally, when you start to embrace the message of the cross, you stop living for yourself and start living for, for others because you, you're looking at what Christ did and you start thinking, it's not about me getting my white picket fence. Who cares about that anymore? You start thinking, what can I do and what can I learn from this and how can I then relay this grace of God? How can I somehow channel it to other people? Then you start saying really crazy things like Peter talks about. 
He says, for this is a gracious thing, which if you understand the cross, the message of the cross, the word of the cross, this, this makes sense. For this is a gracious thing, Peter writes, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure, uh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's foolishness to the world. If you do good, then good should happen. If you do good and you suffer unjustly, then bad things should happen to those people that make you suffer unjustly. In the economy of the cross, how is this possible? Let's continue on with Peter's words. For to this, suffering unjustly, you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Where did his steps lead him? To the cross. He committed no sin, unlike us. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, the Father, who does judge justly. This brings me to my final thought as I close that one up and move to the next one because the very next verse in 1 Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. The foolishness of the cross was ultimately the power of God that saved us all. So number three, salvation. Salvation. Word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who of us who are being saved is the power of God. The three tenses of salvation, I'm going to say this next sentence twice and slowly. The three tenses of salvation, nurture, sober, confidence, without triumphalism. Let me say that again, and then I'll explain. The three tenses of salvation, nurture, you know what it means to nurture something? Nurturing the babies, taking care of them, right? Nurture, fosters something, right? Gets them to go somewhere, grows it up. Nurture, sober confidence without triumphalism, meaning you're not going to fall into despair because you continue to struggle and falter, Right? Being saved. So you're not gonna fall. So if you're hearing all this, you go, man, I just feel like I'm struggling. People who start to understand the word of the cross and this this part of salvation, thus who are those of us who are being saved, we're not gonna falter in despair when we do falter. But we won't have a room full of people that go, I've arrived. The three tenses of salvation keep us right in the middle. I've been saved. I'm being saved. God, I hope one day I'm going to be saved. We live right in this middle area. 
But this salvation expands out. I'm going to close with this last quote. L.L. Wellburn said, In the cross of Christ, God has affirmed nothings and nobodies. The cross of Christ, God has affirmed nothings and nobodies. And with that, I'm going to introduce you to a nobody. His name is Alexa Minos. Anybody heard of Alexa Minos? Good. Somebody drew a picture displaying Alexa Minos in Paul's era. It was found on a catacomb, and I believe it was in Rome. I'll have to double-check my facts on that. On the left, you see the actual engraving. And on the right, you see it highlighted so you can see a little bit more clearly. What do you guys see there? Don't worry about the words. I'll tell you what the words say in, in a minute. What do you see? See somebody kind of worshiping? Who, who are they worshiping? Person on a cross. What kind of head does that person on a cross have? Horse or donkey, right? The words there say, Alexa Minos worships his God. Now this is famous because this is one of the oldest pieces of graffiti that we've ever found. Alexa Minos, we can only assume, was a Christian. And whoever wrote this was mocking Alexa Minos. Because Alexa Minos is worshiping a god that's on a cross that died like a donkey. Think about that. My favorite part about showing you this is that they found, and I couldn't find a good picture of it, but they found in the next room, in a different handwriting, written small, Alexa Minos Fidelis. You know what fidelis means? Faithful. Somebody in another hand, in a small handwriting in the next room, wrote, Alexa Minos is faithful. That's cool, isn't it? For the world, this is what we look like, and I'm okay with that. The Jesus of the Bible to the world looks like that. You're going to get walked on. You're going to get trampled on. People are going to take advantage of you. People are going to persecute you. People are going to do all manner of evil things against you for his name's sake. But no, they did it to him first. Alexa Minas, I wonder if he saw that. You think he did? I think he did. I think whoever put it wanted him to see it. Alexa, this is Alexa Minas worshiping his God on a cross. But Alexa Minas, I think, somewhere else, not just in another catacomb, but I think in the book of life, Alexa Minas, Fidelis, faithful. I want to encourage you with Alexa Minas as you go through your week, because when you embrace the word of the cross, you may end up looking like this to some. You're coming to church, Worshiping God. A God who died on a cross did not overcome the Roman authorities in Palestine, but was killed. But you know that that was ultimately the very power of God. And you're banking everything on that. I'm going to pray, and I think we have communion getting ready to happen. Um, I want you, I'm going to leave this picture up here if you guys are okay with that as we prepare to take communion.
Because we're going to remember this Christ on the cross, and we know that from the world's perspective, he died humiliated. But from ours, it's the power of God. It's the very, very power of God. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and have the guys come up, whoever's coming up, and uh, I'm going to pray as they're getting up here. As uh, they distribute it, after I pray, I'm going to grab your little double cup. I want to encourage you to hold on to it and just say, Lord, change my perspective. Help me to embrace the foolishness that the world thinks is the word of the cross, but I know is the power of God. Heavenly Father, I just pray now that you'd help us to remember this. Lord, I know that this tradition has been given to us as a way to remember you. Help us, Lord. Help us to remember all that you accomplished in your sacrifice leading to the cross. Let us see that as an example for all of our life, how we see life, how we react to life, and how we believe about our own salvation wrapped up in a cross. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.